you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Good morning. I'm excited to be here. I'll just let you know before first service, because Pastor JP was away at summer camp with our students last week, I did give him permission to close his eyes and go deeply into prayer, but not for the rest of you. Okay, so no more closed eyes, maybe JP, but we'll see. I'm excited to be here with you. We are halfway through our series on the content life in the book of Philippians. And if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Evan took a step back from the content of the letter and shared a little bit about what was going on in the city of Philippi. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, I encourage you to go online and check it out. He kind of set the stage for why was it that Paul sent this letter to this church, what was going on at the church at the time, some of the conflicts that was happening. And he did a great job at helping us see kind of what surrounds the purpose of this letter. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to step back even a little bit further because the author of the letter is a man that we know of as the Apostle Paul. His name previously was Saul. So you might hear me bouncing back and forth between Saul and Paul uh, as I speak. But the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote the letter. And in this passage we're going to be in, he gives us a little bit of his backstory. And so what I wanted to do before we get into Philippians 3 is spend a little bit of time sharing with you about who this Apostle Paul is and was. Like, what's his backstory? What happened with him? Now, if you've been in church for a while or Christian a long time, uh, you probably know Saul's story, his conversion story, almost by heart. You've probably, if you're old enough, you've probably done flannel graphs. Maybe you've done coloring books. It's, it's a significant moment in the early church that we read about in Acts. And because of that, because it's so familiar, what we do sometimes is we can kind of glaze over. We can kind of be like, eh, I get it. I know it. Um, and so I want you to just stay with me as we're reading through this backstory. That's one. And two, what I want you to do is I want you to take the Apostle Paul and take him off the pedestal that you probably have him on. And what I mean by that is Paul was just a man. He was a man used by God. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. But because of his position in the church and in church history, what happens is we like to put leaders like that up on this pedestal up as these special people, and we forget that they're just human. I mean, this happens in our culture. This happens in our church. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, Pastor JP and I are friends. Guess what? He sins. He messes up. His wife, Steph, amazing woman. She messes up too. And I know, you know what? I bet if I were to get Steph and JP together and they can be truly honest, they can share each other's sins with me really well, right? But we tend to put pastors, leaders, speakers, politicians, we put them up on this pedestal. We think all these men, women are amazing. And then when they mess up and we find out they messed up, be done with them, right? We put them on this pedestal. We forget that they're human, And then we learn about their mistakes or their personality styles that grate on us or whatever. And then we we just don't like them anymore. And so what I want you to do, if you have the Apostle Paul on a pedestal, I just want you to mentally take him off of that for a moment. Sometimes it's like Jesus and then Paul is just like a tick below that, right? So Paul's kind of messed up too, 
We're going to dig into that a little bit today. But first, I just want you to kind of demystify who he is and remember that Paul is a man. He is a human. He has sinful tendencies. He has personality traits, etc. We're going to learn a little bit more about the Apostle Paul. We're going to end up in Philippians at some point, but we're going to start actually in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, uh, hard copy or digital, I encourage you to open them to the book of Acts. It's uh, in the beginning of the, near the beginning of the New Testament. It's about 90% of the way through your Bibles. If you're using the church Bibles, it's page 1730. If you're on your electronic Bibles, you go beep, 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 and it brings you to Acts chapter 22 is where we're going to be. So find the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels, and then the book of Acts is the story of the early church. Now, Paul's origin story is told in gross detail in Acts chapter 7, 8, 9, and following. That's kind of where we're introduced to Paul and where he has his conversion story. But you might have, like, if you were, like, in high school or college and you took English classes, you might, have, you might be familiar with Cliff Notes. So Cliff Notes were, like, the short versions of the book that you weren't supposed to read because you're supposed to read the actual book, but they gave you enough information to write the essay you needed to write. Okay? So... Acts 7, 8, 9, and following is Paul's kind of early story, but he recounts his conversion story in Acts chapter 22. So Acts chapter 22 is like the Cliff Notes version of Paul's story. So we're going to read as Paul recounts his conversion story in Acts 22. And just so I can set the stage for what's going on, Paul met Jesus, as we're going to learn about. He went on a bunch of missionary journeys around uh, Europe and Asia at at that time, taught people about Jesus came back to Jerusalem, which was like the center of Jewish culture and Jewish life, came back there, was still sharing Jesus, and he got busted by the Jewish leaders. And so where we are in Acts 22 is basically Paul got in trouble, got brought before the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish leadership ruling council intelligentsia of the time. And Paul is brought before them and basically told, you need to explain yourself. Because you're doing things we don't want you to do. And so this is Paul explaining himself to the Jewish leaders at the time. This is Acts chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, that was kind of the Jewish language of the time. Most people would speak Greek, but if you spoke Aramaic, you kind of had more of an in with the Jewish culture. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Hmm. Here's a guy we should be listening to. Let's see what he has to say. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel. Now just pause real quick. Gamaliel was another Pharisee, another Jewish leader. The only other time he's mentioned in scripture is Acts chapter 5. In that story, Peter and John are being brought before the Jewish leaders because they didn't like what Peter and John were doing. And Gamaliel says, he kind of has his influence with the Jewish leaders. And he says, you know what? If what Peter and John are talking about is from God, we won't be able to stop it. So just let them go. And if it's not from God, it's going to just fizzle out on his own. So Gamaliel kind of spoke this wisdom into the Jewish council of the time. He was a respected leader within the Jewish culture in that area. So Paul studied under Gamaliel, this is verse 3, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way. Way would have been the, the name that they used for Christians, people that were Christ followers at the time. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. Paul was a feisty, zealous follower of the Jewish faith. 
He so firmly believed in the Judaism that was core to him that he would go and he would persecute, he would arrest, he would chase after these people that were becoming followers of Jesus. That's how excited, how in he was with his Jewish faith. So he's building this case for how core Judaism was to him. Verse 5, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Saul's response. All we have is a text. We don't know his tone. We don't know what was going on. I don't know about you, but if I heard a voice after a brilliant flash that said, why are you persecuting me? I'm pretty sure my response would be, who are you, Lord? Right? So whatever Paul's response was, he was probably scared, might have needed to change his clothes. I don't really know. But this was a significant moment, okay? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. And this voice replies, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. So there were people with him. They saw this brilliant light, but they didn't understand the voice, whether they heard it or not or understood it. They weren't part of this discussion. Paul says in verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Now imagine being in that moment of time. Here you are, zealously excited. I am going to defend my faith. I have these letters that give me the right to arrest these people. And bam, there's Jesus. Brilliant light. You can't see anymore. He had to be held. Here's this guy, this leader, this authority, this respected guy that had to be guided by hand of his friends into the city that he was going to persecute people. Verse 12, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then Ananias said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now imagine being Ananias in that moment, like God's like, hey, I need you to go chat with this dude. What? This is a guy that's coming to like arrest me, right? But Ananias obeys, he goes, he takes care of Saul, and he, he heals Saul. God uses him to heal Saul, and he's like, what are you waiting for? You've got a job to do. Go do it. Verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing me. That moment he refers to at the end there, the stoning of Stephen was an important moment in the time of the early church. Stephen was a follower of Jesus. He was the first martyr for the church. His story is told in Acts chapter 7. Uh, Stephen is teaching people about Jesus. He has this vision of heaven. He shares it. And the Jews around him just got freaked out. Blasphemy! 
What do you do with the blasphemer? You stone him to death. And so imagine the scene. Here's this guy, nice preacher guy, picture JP. He's like, hey, Jesus loves you. And he goes, blasphemy, right? And they're going to go and they take him outside the city and they're going to stone him, right? So what we find as that story unfolds is that Saul is there. This man is there, but he's not taking part in the stoning. What's happening is, picture like, I mean, I've never been in a bar fight, but let's say you've been in a bar fight. Maybe you've seen one in a movie, you know, and you're going to, you have a jacket on or a hoodie or something. What are you going to do? You're going to take it off. You're going to be like, put up your dukes, right? So that's what these people are doing, right? They're about to stone him. They don't want to get blood on their cloaks. I mean, who wants to wash out blood from your cloaks, right? So they're taking off their outer garments and they're going to lay them at Saul's feet. Now, scholars disagree about exactly what that means, but what we know is that Saul was a trusted person. If I'm going to be beating somebody in my underwear, I want to have my clothes available, right? And so Saul, they knew they, they can lay their clothes at Saul's feet and they would still be there. But in addition, it's kind of a sign of Saul's respect or authority. He was potentially the leader of the crowd, or at least an authority figure. And so here are these men and women, potentially, that are going to stone Stephen They lay their cloaks at Saul's feet, and it says in Acts that Saul stood there approving of what was going to happen. That's Saul. That's this guy that meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and starts living a life following Jesus. But here's the interesting thing. What we see in Paul's story, so Saul changed his name to Paul at some point. What we see in his story is that some of these attributes that made Saul, such a powerful persecutor of the church, still show up in Paul's life after he knew Jesus. As just a couple examples, in Acts chapter 15, so Paul met a buddy, Barnabas. They went around uh, Europe and Asia uh, teaching people about Jesus. But there's this moment in Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Barnabas disagreed on something. John Mark, one of their other friends, wanted to join along. And Paul's like, I don't like him anymore. And Barnabas is like, but he's a cool guy. And they fought about it. And it says in Acts chapter 15, they had such a sharp disagreement, Paul and Barnabas, that they parted ways. Paul could not forgive John Mark for what he had done to the point that he was willing to have a church split, basically, in the moment and go separate ways. Now, they reconciled later in life, but that sharp disagreement is core to kind of something that's inside of Paul. One of my favorite verses or passages, uh, I think this should be a good life verse that you can put on your coffee mugs or whatever. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, Paul's sharing about um, the freedom that we have in Christ. And there's this group of, they call themselves Christ followers, they're called Judaizers, but they, they basically taught that all the Old Testament laws and things still had to be done by Christians. And one of the key elements of that was circumcision. So circumcision, removing the foreskin, We're going to leave this G. Hopefully you guys know what that means. Um, And so Paul's really frustrated that these Judaizers are coming in and saying, no, even if uh, you have to have, you have to get circumcised to still be in God's kingdom. And Paul's like, no. And what he says in Galatians 5.12, life verse, I wish these agitators would go off and emasculate themselves. Keeping a G, I'm not going to tell you what that means. But Paul's basically like, he is so frustrated with these people. I don't want them to just cut off the foreskin. I want them to slip the knife and be done with it. You probably don't hear that in many churches these days. That's our feisty Paul. Paul, also at another point in Galatians, 
He confronts Peter, Peter, the apostle, the rock of the church. He didn't like what Peter was doing. And so Paul goes up and he says, Peter, you're doing it wrong. You shouldn't be like this. That's the Paul after he meets Jesus. The Paul before he meets Jesus is feisty. He's animated. He goes after the things he wants. The Paul after Jesus does the same thing. Hmm. It's interesting because there's kind of this misconception in the church that when we get to the point where we meet Jesus, like all the bad parts of our personality and character just kind of fall away. That we should just expect that everybody who knows Jesus should just be good and perfect and nice and wonderful all the time. And then we run up against Christians who still struggle with sin, still struggle with anger, have trouble, and we're just confused by it. God's purpose as, he, as we meet him is that as we get to know him, he refines these things in us that may be problematic, but they, generally speaking, don't disappear immediately, right? There are certainly those great testimonies, right? You've probably heard in the testimonies of the people who are like, I was angry, or I was depressed, or I was this or that, and then I met Jesus, and everything was just sunshine and rainbows. And there are people for whom that is true. But I would say for the vast majority of, of us, myself included, the things in me that were troublesome or problematic before Jesus were still there after I met Jesus. This coming January will be 30 years since I gave my life to Jesus, and I still struggle with the same things I did when I was in high school. Some of the same struggles about my personality and my character, because that process is a refining process. So this is the Paul that we're going to see. This is the Paul, this is the, these events as he's sharing with the Sanhedrin that I just read, um, he ends that story talking about how God called him to be a missionary to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles were the people that were kind of outside the Jewish church. That just ticked off the entire Jewish assembly. The Jews at that time wanted nothing to do with those people that were outside Judaism. And so when Paul says, God told me to go minister to and share the love of God with these people, oh, they got mad. I'm not going to read it. You can keep reading the rest of Acts 22, but it's like a near riot. They wanted to stone him. All these events are what led to Paul getting arrested and ending up in Rome that led to the writing of what we know as the prison letters like Philippians. So there's the backstory. You get a little bit of a flavor of Paul's character, his personality, who he was. And that's going to become important as we turn to Philippians chapter 3. So if you want to flip a few pages further towards the back of your Bible, we're exactly halfway through Philippians at this point. We're going to read Philippians chapter 3. Starting verse 1, here we go. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Isn't that just like a great coffee mug verse? Maybe one you put on a bumper sticker. My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is a safeguard for you. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Do you wonder, like, if something happened between verse 1 and verse 2? Like, like, did somebody knock on the door as Paul was finishing up the sentence of verse 1, and it was like a Judaizer, and it got just Paul, like, all riled up or something? It just seems like the tone from verse 1 to verse 2 has changed considerably. Rejoice in the Lord. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. And I'm sorry if you're a dog lover. I'm sorry if you have little Fluffy or Spot or Champ or whomever you might have. 
dogs were pretty universally hated at the time that this was written. Okay? They weren't cute. They weren't kept as pets. They were scavengers. They were mongrels. They would go around in packs. I picture like coyotes today. They would go around in packs. They would eat the livestock. So when you say watch out for those dogs, that was not an encouragement. That was not about having a pet. He was calling these people, these Judaizers, these people that were confusing Christians, he was calling them dogs, mongrels, scavengers. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Sounds like a movie, horror, horror movie. Okay, verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And there you see a little bit of Paul's character again. He's going to make a point in this, but he's like, I am pretty good. I do have a lot going for me. Hmm, let me share it with you. Here we go. Verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm better than all of you. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And there is the man who is writing this letter. Now, if you're familiar with Paul, you might be like, yeah, 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 I remember all of this. If you're not familiar with Paul, you might be like, I have no idea what a Benjamin is. What's a Hebrew? Pharisee? So some of this might be confusing. So what I want to do before we continue on in this passage is I want to spend time translating Paul's profile from Bibleese into a modern lingo, into something modern that we can understand. So what you're going to see in this uh, chart is on the left-hand side are all these uh, descriptions that Paul made from himself, but it's all in Bibleese. It's all in stuff that like, yeah, if you study it and everything, you'll understand it, but it can be a little tricky to try to translate. And what does that mean for us today? Okay, so we're going to take these one at a time. The first line here, the first thing that Paul says is he was circumcised on the eighth day. And what we can say about that, if we were to kind of put that in a modern vernacular, is he was raised in a good home. You see, circumcision was a key element of the Jewish faith. And to have a boy circumcised on the eighth day meant that her, his parents were on top of it. His parents were all in with following the Jewish faith. And so Paul, as a boy, was raised in a good home with parents who taught him their faith. Next, we see of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was intensely patriotic. He loved his nation. He loved his people. He would be the one that would proudly stand and sing whatever their anthem would be because he is a proud Hebrew, a follower of his country. In regard to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were like the educated elite of the time. Paul was an educated man. Maybe like me, he went to UCLA and was a proud Bruin from a great school. The Pharisees at the time were considered in the Jewish culture. They were the leaders. They were the teachers. They were the ones who kind of oversaw the Jewish community. In order to do that, you had to memorize large chunks of the Bible, the Old Testament at the time. You had to know a lot about the Jewish laws. And so Paul was a well-educated man, and that was important to him. 
As for zeal, persecuting the church. Paul was passionate about the things that he believed in. Paul was a passionate man. You see that as he tells his backstory. You see that as you read through his letters and the things that he gets feisty about. He was passionate. He was energetic about the things of his faith. That was true when he was a Jew. When he met Jesus, that was still true even as a follower of Christ. Paul was a passionate man. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul was an upstanding citizen. Paul knew the laws of his Jewish people. Now, he's not literally saying he never made a mistake, right? We can use exaggeration. Paul understood that he didn't follow every law perfectly. But the general feel was he knew the law and he did the right things. He was an upstanding citizen in his Jewish culture. Faultless. So I wonder, do any of you see yourselves up there at all? Do any of you see your backstory as a patriotic citizen? Maybe you raised in a good, God-fearing home. Those are important things. Those are important elements of who you are. Now, I tried to think through, like, okay, so if Paul was writing this today, like, what would be the means by which he could communicate his profile? He can let us know kind of his backstory and some of those things. And, of course... I thought of social media. So here's my Facebook profile. Might be a little hard to see, but the picture of me in the upper left is me wearing a hat that says The Dan, because that's what I wanted to wear. Um, But this tells a little bit of my educational background. Go Bruins. Uh, I got a master's at UCSD. I got a master's at Hope International. Um, I was an engineer. So this tells a little bit of what my profile is. And if you were to go onto my Facebook account, you can learn quite a bit about me, quite a bit about my backstory, my profile. And so I think some of these elements from Paul would have been in his Facebook profile. But I also kind of wonder, if you were to think through your Facebook feed or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, MySpace, whatever generation you might be from. What does your feed tell the world about you? What does your, if I were to scroll through your account on Instagram, what does it tell me about what's important to you, what you believe, what you want to communicate to the world? Is it maybe your political views, your economic perspectives, your sarcastic tendencies? Hmm. What does your social media feed, this thing that the world gets to see about you, what does it communicate to you about who you are? Now here's what's interesting. Paul tells us this part of of who he is, and we're going to get back to the passage in a minute, but there's an important piece we need to understand, important thing that we can learn from Paul's story that I think is true for all of us. And that's that your pedigree, your backstory, your profile, your personality, don't change when you meet Jesus. The schools that you went to, the families you grew up in, the personality that's part of who you are, the traits and the characteristics, in general, those do not change when you meet Jesus. Again, there's a miraculous moments where God changes something in you that's been around. But for most of us, those things that are part of who we are, 
when we meet Jesus, they're still part of who we are. We see that in Paul's story, which is why Paul is sharing this. This is who I am. This is part of who I am. But I've learned something. We're going to get back into Philippians here, and we're going to see what it is that Paul thinks about all these things that are part of who he is. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. Now that word garbage in Greek has more the tone of like excrement, poop. But you don't put poop in the Bible. But that's the idea that he's trying to get across, right? These things that I thought were such an important part of me, I consider them garbage, rubbish, something you throw in the toilet that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul learned something when he met Jesus there on the road to Damascus as he moved forward into his life as a missionary, as a follower of Christ, that even though his pedigree and his profile and his personality didn't change when he met Jesus, his purpose did his pedigree, his profile, his personality doesn't change. Who you are does not change when you meet Jesus. But your purpose does. Paul's purpose became not about persecution, not about my zeal, not about the schools that I went to or the things that I know. His purpose became to know Jesus. And in that knowledge, he could live out his life in whatever way that that looked. God could refine these parts of him that were sinful or hurtful or harmful and use them for his glory as Paul got to know Jesus. So what Paul tells us is that knowing Jesus changes your life's purpose. It is important. Knowing Jesus is probably the most critical decision. Getting to meet him, getting to understand him is the most important thing that you can do in your life. But it doesn't stop with you. Because if it's that important, the world needs to know Jesus. And so if knowing Jesus changes your life's purpose, then sharing Jesus changes the world. Sharing Jesus with people that don't know him is what changes the world. We have this problem, especially in our culture today, that we think that we can legislate morality. We think that if we focus enough on creating the right laws or telling people what to do, that that will make life better. What people need is to know Jesus. The morality, the laws, the way that they live their lives will flow out of their relationship with Jesus. So the starting point is not telling people how to live, but telling people who the giver of life is. We don't tell people what to do we don't tell people the bad choices they are. And just as an aside, we don't tell people outside the church that they're sinners. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict of sin. The Bible is clear on that. 
The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. He does that in the context of us sharing Jesus. When people meet Jesus, it opens the door for the Holy Spirit to be at work in them. But the starting point is letting our knowledge of God change our life's purpose. And as an outflow of that, we share Jesus with the world. And that is what will change the world. And what I want to do with the rest of my time is I want to get a little practical. I want to tell you, like, what, you know, what does that look like? How do we do that? I'm not, you, you might be like, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not going to go proselytize or whatever. What if they ask me difficult questions like, you know, how did the universe start or whatever? But I want to just take a step back and just remember, people need to meet Jesus. But there's a problem, and I want to share some hard truths with you. Number one, many people don't know that they need to meet Jesus. I had this conversation with someone a couple years ago. Uh, Maybe you've heard this phrase that people have a God-sized hole in their heart. Okay, and the idea behind that is like if the heart is like who we are, there's this God-sized hole that only God can fill, meaning there's this need in every human's heart for God right? And and our world tries to put the square peg in the round hole, you know, ambitions, careers, family, whatever. But God is the round peg that fits in the round hole. It's a beautiful metaphor. The problem is when we extend that metaphor to assume that people know that they have a God-sized hole in their heart. To assume that people know that their sinful lives or their selfish lives or whatever is going on, that they really are just covering up their need for Jesus and they just don't know it. Most people don't know that they need to meet Jesus. They're happy. They're doing fine. Maybe life is rough sometimes, but I'm enjoying sleeping around. I like getting drunk with my friends on Friday night. It's fun. It's relaxing. I love spending 80 hours a week at work. It's very fulfilling. There are some people that have that because that's what's driving them. That's what's motivating them. None of them are thinking, not none, most of them are not thinking, oh, I I have this need for God in my life, and I'm filling it by drugs or alcohol. Oh, I have this need for God in my life, and that's why I'm working really hard to earn people's respect. Many people don't know that they need to meet Jesus. And so when we approach them, we need to recognize that those that are outside of the Christian faith, those that don't know Jesus, they don't even know that they need to know Jesus. Okay? Number one, many people don't know they need to meet Jesus. Number two, many people don't like the Jesus they've heard about. Now, you could say that's unfair because media portrays them a certain way, but I'm going to be honest with you. There are some mean Christians out there. There are some Christians out there who prefer to just tell you what to do or tell you the way to live or tell you their perspective, and they get in the way of people knowing who the real Jesus is. There are some harsh Christians out there. I've come up against some of them. I've probably been one of them sometimes. And so what people see is they see Christians behaving a certain way or doing certain things, and they're like, why would I want to follow that Jesus? I don't even like him. I don't even like this Jesus that you're telling me about. So many people don't know that they need to meet Jesus. Many people don't even like the Jesus they've heard about. And many people don't think getting to know Jesus is worth it. Who wants to wake up early on a Sunday morning and go to church? I could be sleeping in or watching a football game or something, right? Wait, you're telling me if I meet Jesus, 
if I become a follower of Jesus, I have to stop doing this, that, that, and the other thing? Because it all becomes about, just like the Jews, it all becomes about the list of things we do and don't do. Many people don't think it's worth it because what they hear is that if you want to get to know Jesus, all these things need to change. And what they really need to hear, you just need to get to know Jesus. Let Jesus do the work in the people that you're sharing Jesus with. And maybe he'll use you as part of that, or maybe he won't. But your job, Christian, my job, is to introduce people to Jesus and let Jesus do the rest. People will learn that getting to know Jesus is worth it when they get a chance to get to know him. And they see that living the life that he tells us to is the best life possible. Those are some hard truths because what that means, Christian, is when you go out and you're going to share, you're going to try to tell people about who Jesus is, you need to recognize they may not care, they may not want him, they may have no interest, and that is okay. You share Jesus in whatever way you can. Now what I want to do is leave you with a few action steps, a few things that you can do as you go out there in the world and you try to live this out, what Paul is encouraging us to do, a few action steps. Number one, you need to live like Jesus lived. That sounds like a tall order, I know. But what happens is people will see the way that you live and that's who they will see Jesus as. So if you live as an angry person, maybe a person that likes to cut people down, and they know that you're a follower of Jesus, that's the Jesus that they'll see. But if you live as a person of compassion or caring, then that's the Jesus that they will see. And so your words about who Jesus is may be true, but if your life isn't showing it, nobody's going to care. You need to live the life like Jesus lived. And I'm not talking about being perfect. I mean, that'd be a nice goal, but let's be real. We're not going to get there. I'm saying the way that Jesus interacted with people, the care that he had for them. Number two, love like Jesus loved. It's interesting, if you read through the Gospels with a critical eye, you'll see that Jesus loved the people outside the church intensely. He loved the sinners. He loved the people that didn't know him. The people that he had, Jesus had trouble with were the religious establishment. It was the Christians that Jesus had trouble with. They weren't Christians at the time, the Jews. It was the people that had all their hopes in the church structure or the rules or the regulations, and they missed God in the midst of that. And Jesus was like, how are you missing God and telling people what to do? Jesus loved sinners intensely, every single one of them in and out of the church. But Jesus spent time caring for those people that were far from God. And he spent time challenging those people inside the church that thought they had it all together. He loved them both. He dealt with them differently. And so we need to go out there and we need to love people the way Jesus loved them. And lastly, we need to leave a legacy like Jesus left. In Jesus' wake, he left, an, well, not an army, a couple dozen, few dozen people who were able to spread his message, who had experienced living with Jesus and wanted to continue that. We need to be people who are leaving legacies, whether it's our children, our friends, our family. We need to be leaving behind traces in them that makes them want to be followers of Jesus, that wants to make them know Jesus, that wants to make them help others know Jesus. When we leave this legacy, if you were to think about your funeral that you will have someday, 
What do you want people to say about you? That he read a lot of political science books? That he was wise about economy and inflation? That he was a mean meme maker? Or do you want people to know that you knew Jesus and lived the best life you could live for him? You see, when we look at people's Instagram or Facebook accounts, we see what it is that drives them to post. How many of you would they see Jesus in that? When you're at work, maybe you're the boss and you're telling people what to do and you're giving directions. How many of them would see you as the overbearing, get it done, get it done, I don't care what happens, or how many people would see Jesus in you? Paul considered all of these things about who he was that made him who he was garbage, worth nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And if knowing Jesus is that important, then we need to be the vessels that share that with the world. Paul ends his section of Philippians with these words. Not that I have already obtained all of this. I haven't figured it all out, he says. I don't have it all together. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What a lofty goal that is. But it starts with knowing Jesus. It starts with you knowing Jesus. And the world changes when you become a vessel so that others could know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his backstory and just how messed up he is. He's a great man. He did amazing things for you. And yet, Lord, you refined him. You worked despite his shortcomings. You worked in his shortcomings. And Lord, you made him into a man that was willing to set aside everything he thought important for the sake of knowing you. I pray, Lord, that we would be people just like that. That we would be people whose hearts desire to know you so much that these things that we hold inside of us that we are so proud of or we are so excited about or we think are so important are considered garbage compared to our thirst for knowing you. And I pray, Lord, that as an outflow of that, that we would go into this world and our heart's desire would be that people know Jesus. Lord, we want them to know you because we know that knowing you is what changes the world. So I pray, Lord, if there's something in us that's holding us back from that, convict us of that through your spirit. Change our hearts, Lord, so that we would seek to honor you. Lord, and if we don't know you this morning, if there is somebody here who's listening to this who's like, I don't know who this Jesus is, and yeah, I don't want to know him or anything, I pray, Lord, that you would open the door so that it can just get a small taste of who you are and that their lives would be changed as a result. So we thank you for the love that you have for us and for what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, 
cared for, and loved. See you next time.